Please have your seats. And if you can have Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, open in front of you, that will be helpful. It would really be good if you can be checking that what I'm going to be saying for the next 30 or 40 minutes is not what I'm making up, but is what Jesus is saying to all of us this morning. And the page numbers, by the way, are on the little um, outline sheet as well. And, there's, and on there, there's an outline of where we'll be going this morning. But I'd like to start this morning by asking you all a question. If you're comfortable with this, please turn to your neighbour in pairs or threes, whatever's easiest around you. And what I want you to do is to sum up what words what you would use to describe the Christian faith. If you had to sum up the core principles of what Christianity is really all about, what words would you choose? So if you're comfortable, turn to your neighbour, twos and threes, and then I'll call us back together in 30 seconds. All right, can I draw us back together? Well, I'm not sure what all the words you use to describe the core principles of the Christian faith are. I think I heard the word love. I think someone said redemption, forgiveness, grace, atonement. I mean, they're all really, really good words that really get to the heart of what Christianity is really all about. But how about this word? I wonder if any of you use this word, death, death. As I said earlier, we are returning in our mornings to Mark's Gospel. And if you remember, we paused it last year at a very climactic moment in chapter 8, verse 29. Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, God's chosen king. It's the first time in all of Mark's Gospels, which is half, you know, eight chapters, that the penny has dropped, that anyone has really cottoned on to who Jesus really is. If you remember, the Gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with, the, with these words, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the whole of Mark's Gospel up until this point has been building a picture and Jesus, of, of who Jesus is as the Christ. And the evidence has been plain to see. There have been Jesus' teachings with significant and unique authority. There have been his miracles like anyone else. His authority over people, his authority over nature, his authority over demons, his authority over sickness. Universal, consistent, total authority. And now for the first time in eight chapters, the penny drops with Peter. His eyes are open, the lights come on, and he says, you are the Christ. But two slightly strange, weird things have happened immediately before and immediately after Peter's declaration. 
The first is the healing. We didn't read it, but it happens just before Peter's declaration. You see, before this healing takes place, Peter and his mates, the other apostles, they're in this boat with Jesus. And it seems as though that they are blind, spiritually speaking. In fact, that's what Jesus says. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 18. Jesus says, do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear, and don't you remember? There's a spiritual blindness that is going on with the apostles. And then there's this healing of this blind man. And then what immediately follows is Peter saying, you are the Christ. It's as though the lights are turned on all of a sudden. He goes from being blind to seeing. He goes from clueless to clued up. You are the Christ. But in between those two things is the healing of this blind man. I mean, it's certainly a sign of Jesus saying who he is and he's turning the lights on. But there's something slightly odd about this healing. If you look carefully, it happens in two stages. Verse 24 tells us that this blind man, he sees, first of all, in a blurry kind of a way. He looked up and he said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This weird kind of two-stage healing, it makes us wonder whether Peter's insight that he gets in verse 29 is perhaps as clear as it first appears. So there's this weird healing that before Peter's declaration, but then, weirdly as well, verse 30. Have a look at that for a second. Immediately after Peter's declaration, Peter says, verse 29, you are the Christ. Verse 30, and Jesus strictly charged them to tell everyone about him. Well, that's at least what you would expect it to say. Instead, we get the exact opposite. It's rather strange. He strictly charges them to say nothing to anyone about him. You know, the penny has dropped, the lights turn on, but verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. You must tell no one about this insight that you've had. You must say, you must stay silent, not a word to anyone at this point. And as the reader or the listener, you can't help but scratch your head. Why? Why? Why the silence? Why the secrets? Why can't they go and tell everyone that Jesus is the Christ? And the reason is, my friends, is that Jesus has something more to say about what it means for him to be the Christ. And it's so crucial, so essential, and so central to who Jesus is and what he's about that if you don't know this about him, then you don't really know who he is. If what Jesus is about to tell us this morning, if it's not part of your picture of who Jesus is as the Christ, then you haven't really got the full picture. It's so key that he doesn't want anyone to say anything about him until we get this next bit of teaching from Mark's Gospel. And the key thing, at the heart of it all, of who Jesus is, is death. It's death. Our first heading on our outlines, if you're following along and taking notes, the Christ must suffer and die and rise again. Have a look with me at verse 31, or just listen. 
Okay, 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. It's as though Mark is at pains to show just how emphatic Jesus is about this truth. Jesus himself, you know, he uses the word must. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. This is not a negotiable part of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And Mark then says that Jesus spoke about this plainly. There is no ambiguity in Jesus' teaching. There's no double meanings here at this point. He is not messing around. He says it with absolute plainness. And if you keep reading Mark's Gospel in chapters 9 and 10, then you will see that Jesus says it twice more. Three times in three chapters, Jesus says that the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again. He has to do it. And then you get, as if to underline the point in some respects, you get this running with the Apostle Peter. Have a look at verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love that throughout the Gospels, you consistently see Peter's misplaced confidence. I absolutely adore it. Just a few seconds earlier, you have Peter saying, you are the Christ, you are the supreme ruler of the universe. All authority and knowledge and wisdom resides with you. And then a few seconds later, he says, Jesus, I wonder if I can just pull you aside for a second and just straighten things up a bit. Is that all right? I can't help it, I love it. As he rebukes Jesus. I mean, it's a total mismatch, isn't it? And yet Jesus says to him, Peter, you have in mind the things of man. That is to say, when you think about leadership, when you think about authority, your basic paradigm, your framework of understanding, it's earthly, it's worldly, it is basically human. One commentator says about this, in this moment, Peter was looking for a Messiah bloodstained in victory and not in defeat. That's what the understanding of kingship that Peter has. And yet Jesus has a very different understanding, doesn't he? Verse 33, no doubt that would have been an absolute sting for Peter. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, talk about sticking a knife in. Remember, Peter is Jesus' closest disciple. He's right at the heart of his purposes. He's walked closely with him for who knows how long. And yet Jesus turns around and unequivocally says to him, Get behind me, Satan. He says by implication, look, if you want to minimize or marginalize or reduce or even push out this understanding of who Jesus is, and you are doing the work of the devil. It's the devil who wants to reduce our understanding of Jesus and push 
his death right to the margins. And you can understand what Peter is saying. You can somewhat sympathize with Peter, can't you? We kind of live, we, we, we are immersed in a world with worldly ways of thinking. I mean, how many politicians do you know who rise to the top of politics through public rejection? How many conquerors do you know who are, who are, who conquered by being conquered themselves? How many kings or queens do you know who rule by being killed? How many mighty men or women do you know who show their strength through dying? And yet Jesus says that's exactly how he's going to exercise his authority, his kingship, his messiahship. He is going to do it by dying. And he says he must do it. And he says it plainly. And he says it three times in the next three chapters of Mark's gospel. And if you keep reading on, and if you understand the heart of the Christian message, then you will understand why. It's because this is the only way. The only way for Jesus to carry out and fulfill and achieve his mission. Because these three predictions of his death and resurrection, they find their climax in chapter 10 and are followed by verse 45. Turn to Mark 10, verse 45. It was read to us earlier at the beginning of the service. It's really key that we understand this. See for yourself. Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, I've got to suffer, die, and rise again. I've got to suffer and die and rise again. I've got to suffer and die and rise again. Why? Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man, that is a title that Jesus gives to himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he himself says, to pay the ransom for our sins. You see, you and I, we are trapped in our own sin and by our own failures, and we cannot pay the price for ourselves because we are so riddled with sin. A ransom price has to be paid so that we can have a relationship with God and be forgiven of our sins. If we're going to be forgiven of our sins, a ransom has to be paid. And we and to get a new perfect life relationship with God, a ransom has to be paid. And Jesus Christ says that he came into the world to pay the ransom. And he came to do it by giving his life. That's what his death was for. To pay the price that we could be freed and forgiven once and for all and become sons and daughters of God. So if you work it all out logically, if there is no death from Jesus Christ, then there is no ransom paid. And if there is no ransom paid, then there is no forgiveness of sins. And if there is no forgiveness of sins, then there is no salvation for his people. And so Jesus says it plainly, he said that he must do it, and he said it three times, that he had to suffer and die and rise again. Death is at the heart of what Jesus was all about and what he is about. And so whatever picture of Jesus Christ that you have come with this morning, 
Whatever picture, then you need to make this reality central to it. Knowing that there will always be temptations to minimise or to marginalise it, just like Peter does. You see, there are lots of schools of thought and schools of theology that over the years have done many things to talk about who Jesus is and his death. I mean, there are some schools of thought that talk about liberal theology that accommodates itself to the ways of the world. Such circles would say that the account of Jesus that we find in Mark's Gospel is distasteful and it's wrong. They don't like the idea of somebody dying for the sins of somebody else. Is that how you are feeling this morning? There's also the prosperity gospel, which paints Jesus Christ as a fundamentally a successful person, you know, first and foremost. You know, a healthy and a wealthy man whose example we should follow. Not a dying man. Is that your picture of Jesus? There's the social gospel, which paints Jesus as a kind of spiritual sheer quivara, interested in releasing people from social injustice, captives from prison, and all those kinds of things. Is that your picture of Jesus this morning? There's the therapeutic gospel, where Jesus is painted as some kind of life coach for self-help, you know, someone who is designed to get you back and up on your feet and going again in life. Is that your picture of Jesus? You see, the thing is, all of those accounts of Jesus' life, they are, there's always some grain of truth in all of them, to be honest. But for one reason or another, be it misplaced priorities or something else, none of them put Jesus' death front and centre of who he is which leads you ultimately to a very different Jesus and a very different gospel that is presented here in Mark. And if we think about it, the matter of fact is, what we do have in Mark's gospel is not very impressive, is it? When you talk to people about Jesus, I mean, I mean that might be perhaps why Peter doesn't really want anything to do with this idea. You know, it's not very impressive to talk about an amazing king who dies. And you know, I'm sure, in your own experience from talking to people about Jesus, it's often really embarrassing, isn't it, to try and explain to people that this is what you believe about Jesus Christ. And indeed, sometimes you feel really, really foolish. You feel like an idiot and your face goes red. Have you ever had that moment, for example, in your workplace or in your student halls or wherever it is on the street, whatever, you get to that point where you are trying to explain to people what you really believe about Jesus and that he died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins and that we can be forgiven. And you know that in their heads, as they're listening to you, they're thinking to themselves, yeah, this guy or girl genuinely believes that because someone died 2,000 years ago, they can have their sins forgiven. That's nice for you, but it's not for me. You know that thought is going on. It feels embarrassing. It feels shameful. It feels weak. And the temptation, my friends, is to just push it out and to marginalize it, just like Peter. But Jesus says that's what the devil wants. That's the account of Jesus that the devil wants to push out to the margins. Because... This, ultimately, is the true account of Jesus. This is the true Jesus, and in the end, it is also the powerful Jesus. 
No, the Christ must suffer and die and rise again. Death is at the heart of who Jesus was and is. Friends, this is authentic Christian DNA and there is no getting away from it. And so before we move on, I want you and I to just take a moment in the quiet and just think to yourself, is this my Jesus? Is this the Jesus that I signed up for if I call myself a Christian? Or is this the Jesus that I want to sign up for if I'm just investigating? Is this my Jesus? And as you think about that, why not turn that into prayer? Just take a moment, 30 seconds or so, talk to the Lord about Jesus and what he means to you. And in about 30 seconds, I'll draw us back and we will move on. Okay? And so the DNA of Jesus Christ includes death. But it's also a DNA that he passes on to others, his followers. Because not only must the Christ suffer and die and rise again, but his followers must also deny themselves, take up their crosses and follow Jesus. Our second heading on our outlines Christ's followers must deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. Have a look with me down at verse 34, or just listen. Then he, that is Jesus, called the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That verse it gives a new depth, doesn't it, to that little phrase that we often use, follower of Jesus. Do you use that phrase to describe yourself as a Christian? I am a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's perfectly a good phrase to use. But when you read verse 34, it suddenly has a certain weight all of a sudden, doesn't it? Because following Jesus means following him to the cross. And we're going to think into what that means as Jesus unpacks it for us during the rest of our time together. But before we do that, my friends, please, please note that Jesus went there first. To be a follower means he went in front of us. And it's one of the things that I really love about being a Christian. Our God, Jesus Christ, he does not ask of us anything that he hasn't done so already. There's a great film that came out 20 so years ago called We Were Soldiers. It's a Mel Gibson film, if you've seen it. It's set in the Vietnam War. It's about a legendary American soldier, and he's leading his platoon during the Vietnam War. And there's this rousing speech before they step out onto the battlefield. And this is what the soldier says. He says these words, I want you to know that I will be the first to set foot onto the battlefield, and I will be the last to step off it. 
I mean, that's the kind of man that I would follow into battle. And that is kind of what Jesus is saying as well. Jesus is saying, I am the first to set foot onto the battlefield. I've gone before you, but I'll also be the last person to step off it. And so Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. He calls us to deny ourselves and to follow him, as it were, onto that battlefield. Have a look here at verse 34 onwards. It's some of the hardest teaching in the Bible to follow. And we will only be able to follow it if we keep our eyes fixed firmly, not on ourselves, because we will fail, but on Jesus Christ who went there first. Because he's the one who did it, and with complete integrity, and without even a hint of hypocrisy. And so now he says to us, I want you too to deny yourself. Deny yourself. By which he means not just abstaining from a little something for a little while. Like, there are some people that I know who do Lent or something. You know, he's not saying don't eat chocolate for 40 days. That's not what he means by denying yourself in this instance. What he's saying, what he's calling us is to something much, much more fundamental. Something much deeper. It's about a complete reorientation of our entire way of being, humanly speaking. Someone once wrote that Jesus here is talking about the radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. It's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. Let me say that again. It's not the denial of something to the self, but the denial of the self itself. Deny yourself, says Jesus. And it's worth noting just for a moment how very countercultural that is. I mean, there's never been a moment where this sort of thing has been a cultural norm, has there? But I really do think it's particularly hard for us in our society today. And the reason I say that is because thanks to the ideologies of radical individualism that's particularly shaped our culture since 2000, we now live in a society that is very much about the big me. And it's everywhere, isn't it? And it's constantly being told that we've got to be true to yourself, ourself. We've got to express ourselves. We've got to find ourselves. We've got to be ourselves. We're told again and again that the highest value of, of all, you know, it's self-determination, it's self-expression, it's self-esteem, it's self-realization and self-fulfillment. Such that now, even our culture thinks that it's immoral to do anything less than to put yourself first. We're all about self-care. And so Jesus' two words here, they land like a bomb in the middle of that subculture, don't they? Deny yourself. Now, to be clear, let's be clear for a second. It's not that Jesus is saying that self-care is unimportant. And that who you are as a person made in the image and likeness of God is not important. That is not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying here is that from now on, yourself is not to be the centre of your world. But rather Jesus Christ is to be the centre of your world. Such that you need to deny yourself. It's not about any more self-promotion. 
but self-demotion. It's no longer about finding myself, but about losing myself. It's no longer about being true to myself, but it's about denying myself. Deny yourself, says Jesus. And then he says, take up your cross. And this is an image that really speaks for itself, especially if you know Mark's gospel and where Jesus is heading. To take up your cross is an image of death. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and martyr who died at the hands of the Nazis, he once wrote this. Have a listen. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so if you are here this morning and if you are investigating the Christian faith yourself, you're thinking about Christian things and you're weighing it up for yourself, then you need to hear what Jesus is saying. He is bidding you to come and die. And verse 38, I think, begins to put flesh on the bones and why that's going to happen. Have a look at verse 38. Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. We know, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're going to be unashamed of Jesus' words in our culture, if you're going to be unashamed of Jesus' words in your offices, universities, schools, hospitals, or on the street, then in the end, you are going to get flack for that. If you're going, to, if you're saying that I'm going to live the way that Jesus wants me to live, and I'm going to live according to his values and his ethics, If you're going to speak in the way that Jesus spoke of his uniqueness, of his authority, of his forgiveness and of his salvation, then you know you're going to get flack for it. If you're going to be unashamed of Jesus and his words in our generation, it's going to involve suffering. Now, it probably won't cost you your life. I mean, if you lived in places like northern Nigeria or North Korea, then it might do. And so Jesus, he is not messing around when he says what he says and when he uses his words. But the fact of the matter is that it's going to be costly. If you want to see people saved through the life-giving words of Jesus and the life-saving death of Jesus, then we are going to have to be people who are willing to see our careers slow down or even come to an end. We're going to have to be people who are willing to endure the social cold shoulder in your workplace or wherever you meet people on the street or so forth. We're going to have to be people who are willing to carry the tag bigot or intolerant. The Australian preacher David Cook, when he tries to help preachers think through how you apply a bit of the Bible, Something that he says I find really helpful is this. Why don't you think about what the impossible application of a bit of the Bible is? Well, what is the impossible application of this bit of Jesus' teaching? It's this. That the true and faithful Christian might live a life that involves no suffering at all because they stand with Jesus. That's the impossible application of this text. And so we have got to think rightly about what it means for us today to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Because like I say, he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done so already. Well, this is really, really tough teaching and I know it. 
It's very hard. It's a very tall order what Jesus is bringing in front of us. And we are going to need each other to do it, to challenge each other and then to encourage and keep each other going in it. But Jesus says, if you do, it will be totally worth it. Look down at verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus is saying to us this morning, in effect, that he wants us to do a kind of weighing up exercise. He wants us to weigh up having life now versus having life in the future. He wants us to weigh up having the whole world if it was offered to us versus having our souls for all of eternity. He's saying, in your mind's eyes, pull out a pair of weighing scales. You know, there's old-fashioned pair of weighing scales with two sides on it. And on the one side, put the perfect life. If I could offer you the whole world now, imagine that. Whatever your hopes and dreams, just let them run wild for a second. Put that on the scales. And then on the other side of the scales, put keeping your soul for eternity. And in the first instance, (laughs) the first half is quite attractive, isn't it? I don't know how many more years you all have. But just imagine having it all for the rest of your life. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? And you put it on the scales and it lands with a pretty big thud. But then you think about your soul for all of eternity. All of eternity. And all of a sudden, those remaining years, they pale into insignificance. And you put that on the other side of the scales and it lands with an even much, much bigger thud. And Jesus is saying... Do that exercise in your mind's eye, even now, because he is calling you to make that decision even now, today. And like I say, at first the world is an attractive prospect, isn't it? If we could have it all, then I'm sure, no doubt, we would all take it in a heartbeat, won't we? But I can guarantee you that in that moment when you're lying on your deathbed, even if you have had it all, as you stare down the barrel of an eternity apart from God, you will not for one second think, well, at least I had it all for all those years of everything. It will be incomparable. The missionary, Jim Elliott, he was a man who flew down to South America to share the gospel with one of the tribes of the Amazonian tribes. And within a few days, he was killed in the mission field by one of the Amazon people who went, he went to tell the gospel to. Jim Elliot, he is famous for saying these words. Listen to Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, in the end, our lives are not ours to keep. There will come a time when we will all die and our lives will be lost or at least given back. 
But in that moment, if we stood with Jesus Christ and if we stood with his words, we will gain an eternity with him. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As we close, let me share with you a true story. The story is told of King Charlemagne the Great. He was once a ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. He was a man of vast power, influence and wealth. You could say that he had it all. And centuries later, after his death, explorers discovered his grave. It was a great, big, vast tomb. And they walked in there, and there were cobwebs, you can imagine, everywhere. But as the gloom began to lift and the land and the light flooded in, they suddenly realized there was vast wealth all over the place, an absolute extravaganza amount, absolute treasure trove. And they kept walking through the tomb towards the far end where there was a throne. And on sitting on that throne was a skeleton of a man with a robe on his shoulders and a crown on his head. And as they drew closer, they realized it was the skeleton of Charlemagne the Great. And he had on his lap a Bible laid open and his finger was out, pointing to one verse. Mark 8, verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul?